Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You're just talking words. Justice, right and wrong. They sound nice and they go down easy. But you just try them. Where another man's bread or another man's jacket stands between you and staying alive. The Canadian boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Tamler, you have just released the second edition of your book, A Very Bad Wizard. Of all the chapters in this book, what, there's like 14? 17. Which, 17. Which was your favorite forward? <laughs> <laughs> that forward is just spectacular. It just sets the tone and the mood for the book. I... I it's slipping my mind who wrote the foreword, but it is... Um, <laughs> Semin- seminal. It, <laughs> it's seminal, yes. It's explosive. That was a very cool. funny it, Facebook comment, whoever left that was, Brian, that was like Brian, Exploded. Yeah. In a glorious interdisciplinary mess. I don't even remember if I was trying to be salacious when I wrote that. All right, so the, the plan for this episode is um, if, uh, to, to discuss an article from ProPublica. Is that how you pronounce it? I think ProPublica, Pro Pro, yeah, ProPublica, um, on on algorithms used to determine recidivism rates in criminals. But I wanted to talk to you. As you you didn't suggest this for the record. You know, it's been like what ninety one episodes, and we've barely talked about uh, really not that much about about our work at all. But this one we just have to talk about for those of you who didn't who haven't seen me tweet or Facebook it. I highly recommend picking it up. It's available on Kindle now. Um, should be available soon through Amazon on paperback, but through Routledge on paperback. Yeah, when you say I released it, like Routledge released it Rout- pretty much Routledge. without telling me. Is your Google Alerts pinged you? <laughs> but anyway, I just want you... as many people as possible to read the book. Right. And uh, and if they get through Amazon, the one thing is that your sales rank will go up. So Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So in fact, this is, uh, this is <laughs> it's too a much dilemma. self-promotion. It's a real moral dilemma. The more right now people that do it, I think, would be is important. On Amazon, we, although I don't, don't fucking know, we don't know the algorithm that Amazon uses any more than we you know the the algorithm that iTunes uses. No, it's Except not that we get fucked by both. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do want to talk about it a little bit because as I was writing, I did spend a lot of time writing that forward, and part of what it made me do was actually read the book, um, which, I, which I actually, so you, actually uh, did. you almost knew how many chapters were in. I almost did, um, but. Uh, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about about uh, my impressions of it and ask you some questions. As I was writing the foreword, I was trying to – it wasn't actually too difficult after one of the things I say in there is that after knowing Tamler for this long, after nearly four years of podcasting and talking, you know, 
what we estimated like a hundred hours on air and then probably double that off the air. Um, to me, it seems pretty clear what the overarching theme of the book is. Well, actually, what I said in the book was that it was a sneaky manifesto of a moral pluralist. I love that line. <laughs> yeah, the sneaky manifesto. Um, sounds very Jewy, you know, the <laughs> sneaky manifesto. <laughs> the conniving manifesto. Conniving. <laughs> Rubbing Vermin your hands like together. <laughs> um, uh, and what I meant by that is that although this is a series of... of you know, 17 different interviews, all with people who are either philosophers or psychologists um, who study morality. And you could take it as such as just sort of separate interviews discussing everybody's separate approach or their views on morality. Uh, Taken as a whole, what it seems to to me to show is that any attempts at at coming up with a neat categorization of, of what morality is or what it ought to be is going to be flawed. In other words, if that many smart people in a room have such different conceptions of morality, what morality is or what it ought to be, um, then we have no hope of coming up with any neat overarching theory. Unified theory. You have instead a bunch of incommensurable. Right. And yet true. You know, I mean, I I firmly believe that in cases where there's obvious conflict, only one of them can be true. But that doesn't mean that, that some form of pluralism um, isn't true. But what I wanted to ask you is, did you, if I get the timeline correct, these aren't the thoughts that you were having when you first started putting together right. this book. Is no. That- so I had these ideas more in mind as the second book was, was being compiled, the second edition with the eight new interviews. Um, I had those ideas sort of more, you know, that because this is something that I've evolved towards over the course of my career. And certainly when I started it, it was, you know, like a lot of these projects, it was just an accident. It was the fact that I knew um, Venda Levita because we had gone to school together for she for creative writing, me for playwriting. And then she married Dave Eggers, who famously founded McSweeney's and started her own magazine, The Believer, and they were going to interview a philosopher. This was their original goal. They were going to interview a philosopher every issue. Um, and she offered me, because I was just starting grad school, uh, the opportunity to interview the philosopher first. And so I said, sure. And so I asked, I was getting into Galen Strawson and skepticism about free will. So I asked him, he said, yes. And, and, and then I really enjoyed the process. So I kept <coughs> wanting to do them. And so Galen was your first, as I saw on Facebook, Galen was your first. He was my uh, first. first in, yes, he was my first. I, I was an interview virgin before Galen, and then Galen <laughs> sort of showed me the ways of interviewing. And, um, and it was great. And, you know, I always chose people not based on any kind of o- overarching idea, because if the first four interviews were done before I knew it was going to be a book, and it was only after that that I even started selecting people based on any kind of idea about like what would be good for the book right you weren't sam- you weren't sampling based on you were just basically seeing just trying to get who just, you could. oh this would be cool like i interviewed <laughs> yeah. john Hyke because i saw him he at duke he gave me and gave a talk so i asked him if he would do it and then we happened to be at dartmouth at the same time so that's how that happened i interviewed franz duval because he mentioned the height interview when i was in atlanta for a conference and i was like oh i did that interview uh, <laughs> and you know maybe do you want to do it and so like a lot of 
of it is like that. But then you had to give Phil Zimbardo some good head in order to to <laughs> no, just a, a hand job. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, the, you know, Phil Zimbardo was one that I was sort of pressured into by my wife because I, I thought he would be great. But then I thought there's no fucking way he's going to do it. But he would be great. And then and so I kept putting it off until finally, you know, my wife was, was saying, like, what do you have to lose? Like, he just says right. no. Pinker has, <laughs> I think, is he the only one? Maybe Dawkins I asked back in the day. I don't remember. Um, right. But Pinker has said no. Um, I think twice now. Right. A... No means no, Pinker. Keeps <laughs> <on>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, but by the time the second edition came, the kind of philosophy that people like Valerie Tiberius and Susan Wolf and Nancy Sherman were doing, who were was was very much in line with the the kind of approach to philosophy that I was becoming more excited about and more convinced by. I chose them based mostly on just this is. The, these are the kinds of ideas that I'm drawn to now. And that worked out. And the same with uh, Appiah, of course, with his book, his recent book, uh, Code of Honor. And, you know, Peter Singer was always a perfect person for the book. And just like, again, all these people, these are really well-known people. And they were all pretty much straight down the line. So easy to work with. So easy. Like, they got back to me right away they were they were helpful during the revision process of the interviews it was it's been just a, a pleasure and nobody re recanted any of their statements i you know to this day josh green is the person who has most <laughs> like i i've actually is really the only person i've had to fight with about trying wanting <laughs> like and you know ultimately he gets the final call but i i to try to pressure him to leave in some of the stuff that he says <laughs> Everybody else has pretty much just said, oh, I said that, okay. The, the only other one was William Ian Miller hates I, exclamation points. And so when I would put an exclamation point, he would take that out. And I'd be <laughs> like, but you were yelling at me like about this. Like, how am I supposed to convey that? You, I don't think you want all caps. He's like, no, that's even worse. It's so, like a Kanye West interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the William and Miller one. Uh, you just you don't you read drunk. You guys, you don't, you don't sound drunk because I can't hear you, but I can hear your drunk voice. It's like yeah. one of our night episodes. <laughs> it, it is. It's and I like it because of that. You know, um, it's really the only one I did over beers. Like every other one was done. <laughs> if I drank at all, it was before the interview, not during the interview. <laughs> Just to calm your nerves when meeting with Phil Zimbardo and his. And you know, Simon Blackburn is like right now. If I probably had to pick a philosopher who's philosophical views are most in line with my own i i might choose him a living philosopher so it was great yeah and um and really let's talk about your biggest score of all paul bloom who never oh. talks to us <laughs> yeah i know right like this was right when the empathy thing this was when he was still kind of reasonable about empathy <laughs> about empathy I don't remember that. A, I know. Been a long time. Um, yeah, he was great. That was so much fun. He was the first person I interviewed for the new book and the first person I thought of. If I'm going to do a new book, he would be such a perfect choice. So this this is a random question, um, and maybe it's not meaningful at all, but it's something that I can't help but think about because I know that I would be obsessing over this if it were my book. How did you decide what order to put the interviews in? 
Yeah, that was pain. That was a pain in the ass. That was as bad as you would think it was. Is it, yeah, is, I mean, was it an attempt to be meaningful or? It, I mean, well, right. So, you know, in the proposal, I had to put an order, but you know, the proposal and the final product looked nothing the same. In fact, Routledge yesterday had a table of contents from the proposal rather than the book itself. Yeah. So I got a chance to see who I originally thought was going to be in the book and what the chapter break, like none of that came. So yeah, the order groupings was, well, I have these bunch of interviews. Now, how do I group them in the way that makes the most sense? And, you know, I thought that, I thought I actually came together all right. There were two based largely on the question of free will. So that that was from the first edition. And then the the, the, the second part of the book which is called something like virtue character honor and the good life i don't know that's probably not what it's called but um those are all like the new interviews and those are all the interviews that like i chose because they're reflective of my new ways of thinking or my most recent ways of thinking so you know, they all went together nicely. Questions about the meaning of life with Susan Wolf, questions about value with Valerie Tiberius, questions about honor with Ian Miller and Apia, character and virtue with Nancy Sherman is, you know, like those all group together kind of naturally. And then, you know, there's the issue, the, the meta ethics one. And the last two were a little difficult because, like, where do you put the Josh Green one? The Josh Green and Peter Singer are defending similar views, you know, Josh Green. Uh, and, but on the other hand, the Josh Green and Leanne Young interview probably is more in the sciencey section of the right, book. So, right, right. so those were the biggest, that, that was the toughest call is how to figure out what to do with all those interviews and so okay my last question um what what is your favorite statement from any any of the interviewees i can't say favorite chapter or whatever but i have to think that when you were looking when you were re- listening to your interviews you thought fucking brilliant this thing right here well some of them were ones that that were really funny but that they we i we had to cut out and even i agreed <laughs> Right, that we had to cut out, but that made it into the book. I know it's kind of hard, given that you probably haven't read the book. In yeah, a while. it's been a while since I've gone through them. The one I've looked back at recently is the Apia one, and he said something that I kind of shifted my perspective about honor or its connection with other kind of norms and cultural behavior. The troubling thing about honor is it seems connected to excessive violence. A lot of warrior societies were honor cultures. And, um, like, and the, also, like the Klingons? Like the Klingons of old? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, yeah, or what are the ones in the next generation? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the ones from that one episode. They're like only in like a couple of episodes. <laughs> They, che- they cheated. The cheaters, uh, the cheaters. Yeah, they cheated Jong Jong or whatever. But there's this kind of running theme of in honor cultures of female chastity and purity and paying really strong attention to that. And then also with, you know, with violence and and in, in, war, in warrior cultures. And he said, I don't think there's anything, any kind of essential connection between honor and, you know, controlling women or honor and violence. It's just that honor is such an effective motivational 
framework that it well i don't know if you turn to it or it naturally emerges you know when you're trying to motivate people to do really difficult things you're trying to motivate people to risk their lives like in a warrior culture honor honor based values will do the trick you know no other set of motivational techniques will do the trick like honor and same thing with controlling for you know female sexuality (laughs) can be fairly difficult yet you know from an evolutionary perspective something that men have been drawn to for a long time so once again makes a lot of sense i mean that's it's how we motivate young men to go to war. It's like, sorry, it's it's thing things that that might have that you might have strong motivation to not do, right? <laughs> right. Um, but with yeah. the equivalent equivalent source of motivation maybe hanging there in the form of honor that you could use um, in your defense. And it makes sense that that uh, it reminds me of our conversation with Jennifer Jacquet on on shame because shame is also one of those uh, uh, forces that you can use to get people to. Uh, but in the case of shame, it's to get people to to not do something usually. Yeah, right? and honor harnesses – there's a connection between honor and shame too. Honor definitely right. harnesses the power of shame you know, as part of its suite of emotional, motivational right, right. tools. Um, the threat of shame though, it strikes me as, as – uh, you know these are yeah, these are these are sort of dual swords that you can wield in our culture right? the, but the threat of shame prevents you from from acting in a way yeah. that sort of the, the the searching for honor motivates you to act right so, so a soldier both is motivated by the fear of being branded a coward but also by this the you know seeking glory and patriotism and dying for one's right. country if you're you're motivated both by a quest to be honored and to be esteemed and to gain status, but also by and with the shame comes the accompanying as a marker dishonor for how right. you acted. So, right. um, yeah, I mean, it's that 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 I thought that was really interesting because I think people do associate honor as there's something inherently violent about it or inherently misogynistic about it, and actually. I think the connection might be more contingent than that. Right. So it's probably the case. I mean, it, I think it just is the case that when we think of honor uh, cultures, the, those examples come to mind very easily. We don't think of all of the the sort of positive um, actions that are motivated by honor, like keeping your promises and you know fulfilling your obligation to those you promised that, that you're, you're your family and your duty. Um, it's just less fun to talk about that than it is to talk about honor killings. Revenge no. and, right. you know. Like <laughs> we haven't had an episode so- on, on like, <laughs> the, the beauty of fulfilling your obligations. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's like your dream episode. All right, should we take a break and come back? Yep. And oh, Lord.
hey, just a quick word about supporting the podcast. If you want to support us, we started up a Patreon account, which you can find at patreon.com slash verybadwizards. You can support us for as much money per episode as you would like. Any amount is appreciated. We're actually about to send out our first newsletter. So for any amount, anything, the minimum that Patreon will allow you to donate, um, you will get a monthly newsletter with our recommendations, our picks, movies, TV shows, books, articles, podcasts, we will yeah. even give some other podcast love. So, um, and so- and seriously, like I, I care more about the number of people than I, I than I do honestly about like the amount that they give. So there's, but I, as I would a actually- Jew, I care <laughs> about the money. <laughs> I just care about popularity because I'm shallow. Also, if you do contribute, I, I don't remember what the level is. Uh, two dollars, right? Two dollars per yeah. episode. You'll get um, something from you, right? What is that? Yeah. And when is I'm that going together, up? I'm putting together a uh, just little. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was going to say CD. We're not, I'm not sending out a CD. A digital mixtape of a bunch of the beats that I've done. A lot of them that I haven't posted with some original artwork and um, a few notes to thank people who donate two dollars or more. And hopefully, I can get that out at the same time as the newsletter. Maybe when once we hit 100 supporters, we're at 90 right. as of recording. But anyway, we really appreciate everybody who has supported us through Patreon. You can also support us on PayPal at the verybadwizards.com slash support page and Amazon. That's been going very well, and we really appreciate all you people who click through, and we get a little little piece of whatever you purchase at no cost to, uh, to you guys. Also, we really love your feedback, your comments. We had a ton of feedback on our one of our dumber <laughs> fights on the baby swapping article, that Eon article. I don't know. Like At first, everyone seemed to be agreeing with me, especially on Twitter, and then the tide turned a little bit. I don't know how you then, feel well, about you that. Know, the, I, I, was, I was happy to see, the, the, as I called it, the silent majority come after Team, <laughs> team Peace. <laughs> um, I was happy for you that you got some love. You usually get shit on. Well, I mean, I, even when I got love, I got kind of shit on because it would <laughs> – it's true. They would, people would say, you know, like I never agree. Like this is weird. Like I, I, this is a new feeling. Um, this is like seeing a, dip, like, a, like a color, a new color for the first time or something like that. Um, I agree with Tamler. But I do, you know, because that article is idiotic. It's moronic. Uh. Yeah, and for the record, my my argument was really not whether they were right. It was just trying to take you to uh, get you to take it seriously. Just pretend. Which I remain. And and one thing that the people who agreed with you weren't able to do is explain why. (laughs) They were (laughs) able to type in on Twitter that they were. No, no, that's that's exactly the opposite. Everybody who emailed uh, with reasons actually agreed with me. People on Twitter who didn't give any reasons agreed with you. Yeah, but those emails made no sense. (laughs) However, we love to read your emails, (laughs) and we encourage you to email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com, and sometimes we can respond, sometimes we can't, but we always read them. Really, we do. And rate us on iTunes so we can compete with those cocky motherfuckers at Partially Examine Life. They're like the don't the stab them in the back podcast like jocks in a John Hughes eighty movie eighties movie right now. 
<laughs> and what are you? I'm like I'm like Anthony Michael Hall. <laughs> I'm like the girl who's shaking her dandruff off. <laughs> All right. Uh, now we sort of called an audible on this one um, because this this article in ProPublica was so interesting that we and so sort of up our alley um, that we, we we decided that we had to talk about it. Uh, the article is called Machine Bias. Their software used across the country to predict future criminals and it's biased against blacks. And the uh, by Julia Angwin, Jeff Larson, Surya Matu, and Lauren Kirchner. Um, we'll put a link to it in show notes. Uh, and the gist of the article is just that, that there is increasingly, it appears to be that people, the legal system in the United States is using uh, algorithms to try and predict uh, recidivism rates in criminals and the way in which it's used, at least the way it's intended to be used, is to make decisions like uh, parole or probation decisions, or early release, that kind of thing. Um, but it seems to be that it's also often used for sentencing guidelines. So in other words, independent of any human being, they input uh, a certain set of information about um, somebody who's been convicted of a crime that gets crunched, the numbers get crunched, and the output is a score that essentially is a score um, predicting what the chances are that you're going to commit a crime in the future, um, a, a, a crime that's either nonviolent or a violent crime. And so you get a low, medium, high score or a numerical score from zero to 10. And this is used in order to um, at least give the judge some information um, that presumably is used to determine. And not um, so, I mean, it depends. Like, as I was listening to the ProPublica podcast on this, which um, I strongly recommend, it, it's by the, it's the, one of the authors, Julia Angwin, I think she's the lead author, is interviewed. And she said it really varies by state to the extent to which they embrace these algorithms. But in Wisconsin, for example, they'll use, a version of the algorithm to, to like when you're deciding whether to arrest someone when a cop oh. is 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 stopping somebody they'll ask them like a quick series of 10 questions as a guide to whether to arrest them or not wow. so judges enthusiastically embrace it uh, in their sentencing guidelines and then of course in parole decisions so so it can be throughout the process that that these are used wow. um, so i this this article is about a particular algorithm that spits out a score based on 137 questions. So this is a company called North Point. It says North Point's core product is a set of scores derived from 137 questions that are either answered by defendants or pulled from criminal records. Race is not one of the questions. The survey asked defendants such things as, was one of your parents ever sent to jail or prison? How many of your friends, acquaintances are taking drugs illegally? How often did you get into fights while at school? The questionnaire also asks people to agree or disagree with statements such as a hungry person has a right to steal. And if people make me angry or lose my temper, I can be dangerous. So so you're given this risk score. Um, uh, and and right. So the, the central claim of the article is that this is unwittingly actually giving uh, causing racial disparity in the legal system by uh, by disproportionately calling black criminals uh, higher risk 
at saying that they're at higher risk of recidivism than they actually are and making the opposite error in the other direction for white criminals. That is, the false positive rate for black criminals is uh, substantially higher than it is for white criminals. So here's the here's a stark statistic. La- so there's two categories. Labeled higher risk but didn't reoffend. 23% of, of whites... That was true of 44% or 40, almost 45, 44.9% for, for black people. That's your labeled higher risk and so get sentenced on that basis but didn't reoffend. Or, and then labeled lower risk but did reoffend, 47.7% of the time white, 28% only for, for black. So it's funny, there's, they interview a white guy who had just come out of prison for five years for drug trafficking. And he was, and he's saying like, he was shocked at how low his score was. You know, the racial bias comes from, obviously from, from both sides. So it says overall North Point's assessment tool correctly predicts recidivism 61% of the time. Um, but blacks are almost twice as likely as whites to be labeled at higher risk, um, but not actually reoffend. So this the, the here the definition of recidivism is is uh, I, was it I, I believe whether or not they committed a crime in it's across a, a two year period something like this right but it's whatever definition of recidivism that they whatever data that they have about whether or not somebody committed a crime in the future so uh, ProPublica actually did their own analysis it they linked to it in the article. Um, a separate document where they they present all the data, and so of course I'm fascinated by this because I actually am pre- am predisposed to think that. And here's here's my big here. Okay, Tamler, here's my big problem with the article. Nowhere at all do they compare this uh, algorithm to judges' judgment. So. Their claim that it is biased against black defendants, which is an interesting one because, again, race is actually not at all a a piece of data that's fed into the algorithm. So, in other words, there's something that's being picked up. um, It's not hard to see how that might be true, right? Like, blacks are much more likely to be incarcerated. So, if um, you ask them if their parents were incarcerated, that's... yeah, no, absolutely. It's just it's an interesting claim to that it's that it's pre- uh, prejudice against uh, right. If if they actually like, I, it would be much more shady if they actually input race. Right. Um, um, so this this I don't know. It's, it's like in some ways that would be a little more straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> just using yeah. code words is not like less shady. Well. I- I don't know if it's a code word for race, whether or not your parents were in prison, but obviously the rates are going to be higher, right? So this is, but really the core question that ought to be asked is, is this any less biased than the judgments that a judge is making without the algorithm? That's the only interesting question as far as I'm concerned, right? Because if it turns out that this is, right, uh, the false positive rate for blacks at whatever, 44% is actually twice that when a judge makes the judgment on their own, then wouldn't you say this is a milestone in in equality? Well, so, right. Unfortunately, like, there's not that... I, I, I don't think there's that data available because judges don't explicitly make decisions 
based on their perception of how likely the offender is to reoffend. So there's no way to get that data. So well, you, I mean, you could right. do a you could do a study where you ask the judges. But I, agreed, it might be difficult. The set. I mean, they didn't even try this. You could look at just the sentencing. Um, that is given black defendants and look at the versus white defendants and look at the recidivism rates and see whether or not the sentencing the judges gave is correlated with recidivism rates. Uh, that uh, Yeah, I guess you could. And then, the, the, but those judges, it, it's, it's hard to know to what extent their decisions were influenced by likely to re by the question of whether they were likely to reoffend. I mean, so I think we're going to disagree about the, just the, the wisdom of using an algorithm at all to in, uh, influence your decision here. But I will, before we get to that disagreement, I will admit that I bet the people, not the F- North Point probably, who's a for-profit company that mm-hmm. uh, won't release their algorithm. Like yeah, the, that, the, that is a huge problem. That, that is, that's, that's creepy. And again, add one to the marks column. You know? I mean, you know, people like, it's, it's hard now. To, for me, when people say things like prison industrial complex, you know, I sort of dismiss what they're, they say next. But that is just Not me. fucking like uh, insane, right? They're totally. I mean, there's a profit. They're making profit on this um, now. But I do think that the people who came up with this idea, um, she interviewed. I don't know if this is in the article or if she just said this in the podcast, but she interviewed these people, and they really did have the best intentions of yeah. reducing bias. That was the yeah. goal. Like this is a way to bring more objectivity into sentencing um, by making it not up to the discretion of a possibly racist judge, or you know, at very least, implicitly biased judge, and um, and and introducing this level of objectivity. But I think that. As often is the case when you attempt to do that by reducing the amount of discretion that a judge has and by doing that, reducing their ability to take the particular factors of a particular individual case into account, then you are going to introduce bias of uh, of a different sort. And you're right to point out that we don't know which is worse necessarily, but what the algorithms do is they and this is I think why they're popular. They remove the accountability or the responsibility from the judge. Like it's not my fault. It's like this is what the score spit right. out. And I think that accountability is really important as 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 a judge, I agree with the sentiment you're trying to express. It's, it's just that I don't believe the judges are really actually accountable for the sentencing that they give now. Like, I don't think there's any recourse. And I don't think that when a judge is is a racist bastard that anybody actually is 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 saying that the quality of their decision is improved because they think that people might be mad at their decision. I, 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 I just can't. I find it hard I don't to know. believe somebody that there's does any a, accountability. If somebody now. does a study and comes up with the view that this judge has been um has been motivated by racist reasoning you know the media can make something of that the judge is going to feel pressure to change his or her ways but this all this does is just let's it's the algorithm's fault i well but but so there is whether or not the 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 judge is individually responsible and whether or not we're holding the makers of this algorithm responsible which is i take it in fact one of the things that is being done with this article, I don't, I don't actually think that there is a removal of it, of 
accountability or responsibility. It just sort of shifts to the, the, the people who are making this algorithm. Well, but it's not their their job isn't to issue justice. Their job is as, you know, like and this is part of the problem is to make money and so like yeah, they're responsible but not in any personal sense. Like yeah, they just I mean, issued denials and now it's up to the states whether they want to use them and so yeah, maybe they won't get used and they'll become a less profitable company. But they're not responsible in the way that a judge would be if you documented a series of uh, of racially biased verdicts. Um, that I mean, when does well, when does that happen? I've I've not heard of that being the case where a single a single judge is their whole record is looked at and right because this is one of the problems with the way that it's done now is that for any given case, a judge is not constrained. And so they can offer any sort of reasons about why this case was special and it wasn't about the defendant being black. I also think like you can – like these judges for the most part, it's not like they're these cartoonish racist – like they they actually are smart, empathetic people, uh, many of them. And if you remove their ability to use their – their wisdom and their discretion and their empathy, then I think that will end up harming the people that you're that you're trying to help. And here's the thing about the algorithm: there's no way to get objectivity here. It's such a false illusion. You you ask certain questions, you're for, you're going to then everything will be based on those answers to those questions. But there'll always be questions that that could have helped the defendant, but that you didn't ask. And you're not. And it's this like holy grail to try to find the perfect algorithm but that's algorithms will surely outperform humans in predicting rates of future crime so that i think we if we constrain the question to that i don't even know if that's true like i I mean they will that's been demonstrated but but, uh, algorithms outperform human judgment everywhere you put them so i mean it's just the it's just the case that the more information that you have the better the more likely you will be to predict something and computers can crunch much more information than humans can. But for a second, grant for a second, even though we can get back to that, grant grant that possibility that the algorithm outperforms a human in predicting whether or not somebody um, is going to commit a crime in the future. Then I'm with you in the sense that that is merely one piece of information that you would then give to a judge who would decide, as you say, whether or not to use that. Right. Because the the probability right. of, that an individual will commit a crime is not as you said it's not the only thing that ought to go into sentencing or in but whether or not north point's algorithm is accurate is a separate question than whether or not there will be an algorithm that approaches something like 80 to 90% accuracy in predicting recidivism right no that's right and it could be that this is just a bad algorithm from a philosophical moral question the question is should we be in the business of trying to produce this algorithm and I kind of, so I, I see the argument that it's just a piece of information that a judge that would be helpful to a judge were it to be accurate and, and were it to be purged right. of whatever racial bias that it had. The problem is 
all of a sudden now the judge still has discretion but has this new information. Let's say the judge decides to give a lower sentence. Well, why did, why did they do that given the high algorithm score? All the all the, the the old bias problems reappear, and in fact, you know, it's it becomes easier to accuse judges of bias because they ha- here on the one hand they have this score, but on the other hand, they made a decision that doesn't match that score. It's just that human te- the human tendency at that point would be to just say, okay, then but, uh, I'll go with the algorithm. But that's only if you mistake the algorithm score as being. <clears throat> the actual sort of having one-to-one correspondence with the decision that the judge is trying to make. How long should I sentence? Or should I release this person for parole? And I think that once you clarify that, all you're doing now is giving the judge... So say the judge, in normal judgment, um, uses, whatever, 10 pieces of information, right? Takes into account um, what they think that the possibility of a future crime is, the circumstances surrounding this particular crime, um, like the heinousness of the crime, uh, the remorse that the defendant seems to see at the trial. All I'm saying is that you have, in place of the judge's intuition about whether or not there will be a future crime committed, now you have potentially a much more accurate and objective score that you could insert in those 10. And so in and of itself, I don't see how how un- unless you start relying on the algorithm to give you the final answer as an, a source of input into the judge's decision. I don't see why we would turn away from something that could crunch all of that data into one predictive score. Well, it's the collateral damage that comes with that. Like I said, the lack of accountability. So if that algorithm produces a likely to reoffend, there's tons of political pressure on the judge to give a higher sentence. It's going to be very hard once you have these algorithms in place. It will be very hard for the judge not to give them outsized importance because they have this illusion of objectivity. But that's, like, but that's only but a problem. Just, but that's only a problem if you if you think the scores are inaccurate, right? No, I mean, it's, I, it's only an illusion of objectivity if, in fact, it wasn't objective. But well, if you have... Let me ask you this, because as a Kantian, I would think that you might have a problem with punishing somebody based on... Even, let's say, if it was like a, like a really good algorithm that was right 80% of the time and issued uh, a verdict that this person was 70% likely to reoffend. Is it fair to punish that person for that likelihood for something that they haven't done yet? That's sort of a running issue in this uh, yeah. in this debate, too. You could say, well, that's what we do. So, like, if we're going to do it, we should do it properly. Okay, so, so a couple things. One, um, I can't believe that it's gotten to the point where you say as a Kantian, and I didn't even flinch. I didn't even object. I'm like a, I'm like one of those learned helplessness dogs that just like has been shocked so many times. I'm just taking it. I'm just accepting this. Oh yes, as a content. Yes. <laughs> Second, yes. So I agree. I so if it were up to me, these decisions would be um, these algorithms would only be used in judgments of conditional release. That is, once if you've been sentenced 25 to life, and now you're coming up for early release. There, I think that it should actually like things like your psychopathy score that are known to be really, really good predictors of whether or not you're going to um, be recidivist. But that's because I think those judgments are highly like normatively thought to be decisions that are made 
based on whether or not somebody's likely to reoffend. So basically, I think that it should only be used to determine leniency or not, right? So if you've been sentenced 25 years, should you serve all 25 or should you be released early? Doesn't that, that amount to the same thing? Because that's just going to influence, if you have those policies in place, that's going to influence the original sentence. If you have that policy, you're, it's going to be easier to give higher sentences. I, well, I don't know. And this is, but this is part of the, another unsatisfying part of the article, which that it's weird that I'm picking up on that you're not. That this that this article is very sort of um, one sided in its knee jerk liberalness. That is, it doesn't give all the information that you would want. And one of the pieces of information that it just assumes, but that is not there, is whether or not overall judges who are using this score are giving reduced sentences or whether they're giving exacerbated sentences compared to normal. No, actually, I think that's right. And again, this came up in the podcast that in the Florida district, that that was the original point of research for the article, they've had this massive problem of this prison overcrowding. And so they were trying to come up with something that would make it politically acceptable to let people out of prison and to reduce sentences. This was one of the things they they turned to. Um, And I think, again, like a lot of times where you start out with good intentions and with trying to be more objective, it can... No, but I'm saying into doing the exact opposite of what you want to do. But we don't know that it's done the exact opposite. That's what I'm saying is, in fact, there is no data presented in the article as to whether sentences overall have gone down since the algorithm got adopted. Well, I mean, sentences have just gone down, period, but not because of the algorithms. So, again, that would be... that would so you so it'd be, but I wouldn't guess that be a piece of data that, that you'd want to know that in in districts like com- yeah. comparable districts where the algorithm is adopted, did sentences have a significant? Right. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. That 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 would be an interesting piece of information. It still wouldn't. So there are two pieces of information that could completely flip the conclusion that's made. One is that compared to normal sentencing, blacks are getting lower sentences using the algorithm. And two is that the overall punitiveness has gone down. Those two pieces of data are actually missing and could potentially be in the favor of using this algorithm, given everything that you've said. Every time we try to take discretion out of sentencing, if you look historically, um, starting in the 70s through the 90s with the three strikes law, every time we try to introduce, you know, sentence minimum, minimum sentences, those things were also the intention was to try to reduce bias in the system because certain people were getting out really early and black people weren't. And so, you know, have minimum sentencing guidelines and three strikes in your out policy as a way of that. That's an objective way. I, so I so I think that you're cherry picking um, the examples, right? If you look at this, just how, where we were 100 years ago in terms of punishment, we have actually, you know, we no longer punish people the way that we used to, right? No, but the, the prison population has exploded. Like the percentage of the population has exploded. Wait, wait. No, we had this whole discussion when we talked about the, the shame article. No, I mean, over history, we've actually become less animalistic and brutal in the forms of punishment that we that we dole out. Well, I don't know if that's true. Like, I think that brutality becomes hidden. In fact, I think 
prison life has become less, more dehumanizing, and ha- there, there's so more suffering. I, I mean, I, I don't disagree that that we have a real problem with overpopulation and that there's brutalities in prison. I just don't think that that's a result of us trying to be more objective in our sentencing. That's the link that I don't think can be drawn. No, of I mean, course, I, this is a lot of things, but... Um, so, so here's a question. I mean, so, so take, you know, all of the all of the people who are in prison, like in California from ten years ago or something, like people who would get just knocked for like a, you know, fucking holding an ounce of weed. The the better the algorithm gets at actually predicting future crime, if that's what you if, if that's what you care about as 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 an important piece of data, the better you get, the more you can say, hey, there's tons of people in prison who really don't deserve to be there. They should be on conditional release, early release. So yeah, I mean, I I think that is the upside. Again, because of this stamp of objectivity. Just like it can give judges an excuse or parole boards an excuse to give people higher sentences, it can also give them an excuse to give um, people lower sentences or to grant them early release because it has this imprimatur. If it, in fact, is accurate, why call it an excuse? Well, I don't mean an excuse. It It gives them political cover. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes things that give you political cover are true, but it's but, but important that like, you have it, the political cover. But if if you could now go into California's prison system, I'm thinking of it because I'm here now. Um, if you could go in and show that 50 percent of the prison population actually has zero chance of ever committing. Well, you can never crime. show that. No, right? no, no. you're always going to no, be with. But, but take but take this hypothetical that you have an algorithm that's 90 percent accurate and you show that some substantial amount of people in the prison population by by this algorithm uh, have really, really low chance of ever committing a crime again, then um, call it an excuse or call it politically motivated. But I don't see how that doesn't give you actual data that you would want normatively to make the judgment that these people should not be in prison. I agree. If that's <laughs> so, it, it, it's a lot of ifs. If that was what these algorithms were being used for, then great. Then I would be all for them. If, if they were accurate, my my worry about them is is that there's something inherent about just this whole quest that will make them not be used like that. My issue is, and I don't know, maybe you can give me some documented cases of this, but it seems to me that whenever, every time you turn to objective measures uh, during sentencing, it ends up increasing sentences rather than decreasing it. And there's a criminologist from Minnesota named Norval Morris, who kind of, it was a slightly different debate. It was on the question of whether people of equal culpability should get the exact same sentence. So this question of ordinal proportionality, um, if you get if you have a certain amount of culpability, then you should get a certain punishment and everybody should get that punishment. So he was saying that that will inevitably lead to higher sentences. And I, the reasoning for what I'm saying, so let let me, I'm I'm just thinking of this now, but tell me if you think that, that this makes any sense at all. But you start out with a score on a, on a fairly good measure, right? A fairly good algorithmic, algorithmic measure. And they get a sentence based on that score. Hold on. There's where I, 
I must insist that we remember that this is not a score that is a sentencing score. It right. is merely a a one piece informs. of information. It informs. Yeah, but it's but it's so, merely one piece of information to inform it. So, so hold, but but so I'm imagining <clears throat> that you're holding the other stuff constant, and I know you can't do that completely. But hold the other stuff constant. This will the score will lead to higher sentences for people with higher scores and lower sentences for people with lower scores. Yeah. So the, the, the argument, I think, for why the sentences creep up is, so you get this, say, low score, maybe a three, and let's say that person gets out in a few years, in part because of receiving a low score, and then reoffends. So the algorithm, as good as it was, isn't perfect. And now you have people clamoring for, well, you know, he was released and he committed another crime. So now that's the sentence that goes with that score, or at least that's informed with that score, has to get higher. Because people always complain about people getting out because they reoffend. They don't complain about people getting out later and not reoffending. So right. now, so if you have these objective measures in place, those scores will inevitably creep higher every time somebody who received a low score goes on to reoffend. You have to increase the sentence to satisfy the political will. It sounds plausible, and it, I believe that that might actually happen. But that is only a ding on human judgment. It's not a ding on the quality of, of data you're getting from the algorithm. That That's just, you know, like institute a minimum sentencing guide. It's a ding on using guide. an algorithm. I, I guess, but it's like it's like it's like look, you know, you could have perfect weather data and still for and still not take an umbrella, right? Like that's just your stupidity. Like you, if you're using the data the way that it's supposed to be used, then then it's one thing. It's not a knock on the on the data or the quality of the data no, no, no. That, it, of it's, information. It's the person used. Everybody's using it as it's supposed to be used. Everyone's using well, this. They're, but they're not because you're saying that then when one person, right? I mean, I, and I believe you that human judgment overweights one kind of error versus another kind. That that failure right there is the failure of the judge to like kowtow to the pressure of the people. Well, or like, the, you know, like the or the laws. This is, then new laws come into place because it gets yeah, but, you know. But that's 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 a misapplication of that number. That's saying like well, right. that's in, in an ideal world, it would be great to have an algorithm that would give you reliable information. But it's not an ideal world that we live in. We this, live in the world we live in. We have the this, political reality is the political reality. So I'm not against this, algorithms in isolation from all other like no, uh, but this only human, this is only features. a powerful art is only a powerful argument if you actually have evidence that the algorithm is causing worse outcomes than the way that things work now and i just don't believe that it is i mean judges are using information that is low quality information to make these judgments quite often right so if they are at all using information about what they think of as the chances that a criminal will reoffend they are using worse data than what can be given to them via an algorithm. You know what's interesting is there's a kind of parallel debate that goes on in sports analytics versus right. the sort of intuitive hunches right, the, of managers. The money ball, right? I'm, yeah. I'm proposing money ball for crime. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the funny thing is I'm usually in those debates on the side of money ball. 
I, even with Nate Silver and political prognostication, like it's it's there's a lot of areas in which this use of data coming into conflict with people's expertise or people's hunches or people's uh, intuitive sense. I and I and I like I said, I almost always find myself on the side of the analytics, but not in this. Not in this particular case, but I think that's the reason doesn't have to do with analytics as much as what it's the overarching goal that we are trying to achieve is. And analytics is just a way of getting to that goal. But if you're opposed to the goal in the first place. I mean, it is tricky. You're right, because there is, say, wins, right, or you know, whatever performance of an athlete and wins of a team, that is something that everybody agrees is the proper metric, right? And right. Um, and you don't have that in the criminal justice. We're not clear what the goal ought to be, right? If the goal was simply let's do a, the best job we can of predicting whether or not somebody's going to reoffend, and um, and if if that were the sole goal of of prison sentencing then you would i think turn to moneyball for crime but that's not right and i and i think that, that that's that's one of the points that you're making is that you and i think this is where we have to tease apart and you may be right that the reality of the matter is that given given the algorithm human beings will always misuse it by by making it by weighting that score more and that may be the case, in, in which case I would agree with you. Then then people shouldn't fucking use it. Like we should – even if we're at 99 percent accuracy for recidivism rates, but recidivism is only one small part of what should go into sentencing. If we find the judges are using that score disproportionately given what our normative theory is about what how we should mandate prison sentence. But I think the failure there is one of human judgment and not one of the quality of the information that we're getting. Because if all you wanted to know was the recidivism rate, then you'd be dumb not to turn to the analytics. And I, I, that's absolutely right. And then the question is whether you want to turn to it or not, whether that is serving your higher purpose or, or not. I, I don't think there's data on this either way. And one of the differences between this and like Nate Silver or this and the Moneyball movement in baseball is that this doesn't have success. We don't have successful analytics yet predicting mm -hmm. recidivism or at least. Right. And uh, it, well, and, it, and it's so what, what is satisfying, right? Because if, if you have whatever 66 percent success in predicting recidivism, is that a success given the goals that we have. And and I don't think that given any individual when you're making a judgment that that is a success, right? I think that that one of the problems here is applying in the aggregate, we know what it means to have. It's sort of like our, uh, there's there's this great website called Umbrella or Not. And all, the, all that the website does is you plug in your zip code and it tells you yes or no, take an umbrella. Right? Like, because what it's trying to do is accept the fact that people don't know what to make of like a 35% chance of rain. They don't know what that means for any, like, what does that mean for today? Should I take an umbrella or not? Should I take one? At, is the cutoff at 60% chance of rain? Like, what does that mean? Right. See, people are again, bad. This, at these... is, this ignores such important, particular, individualized <laughs> factors about a person. Like for me, I am much, 
I am much more miserable if I take an umbrella and it doesn't rain. I feel like an idiot. I feel like I feel like less of a man <laughs> than and then if I do if I don't like if if it does rain and I don't take an umbrella, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But that algorithm can't take those factors into account about my individuality and my particular. But this, this is a good example, but this is where it's so obvious that you're wrong because all you're saying is let's put in one more piece of information into this algorithm. Which error I hate more. <laughs> okay, you put that in, but still, like, you're not going to get uh, all these individualized features of the day. Just, no, I just think, you know, you need a virtuous person but, who is but you able can't. to use their emotions and their reason in perfectly fine-tuned ways to decide. But, but now you sound like those old baseball managers, right? Right. I mean, because I, I can't believe that what you're saying is that given enough information, a computer can't outperform you in a judgment. Not about umbrellas. <laughs> you don't think that, like, if I tell you there's a 33% chance of rain, that, that a computer can't beat you in, in determining whether or not um, you should, given your propensities, you should take an umbrella? Yeah. Proclivities. I am saying that. It's unfalsifiable. Because I I can always sort of like, you know, there's all sorts of confirmation bias. There's all sorts of like, I convinced myself I didn't really want an umbrella then. Like that that was fine even though. So, but. uh, We we need some random. Back to the analytics analogy. Yeah, I want to get. There's something though that I want to keep meaning to come back to that that I keep forgetting about. Because it was at the beginning of the conversation you said, I said, well, they don't. Race isn't actually input into the algorithm. And you said, this is just. Right. It's predicting race based on what we would reasonably know are sort of uh, biases that already exist. Like if your parents went to jail, um, we know that blacks get arrested disproportionately compared to whites. How often um, do you get sunburned is, is a question on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that is something that 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 ought to be taken into account. I mean, this is where the information that is going into the algorithm might already be biased. And so you. There, I think it's you know it as they say in in computer science, you're garbage in, garbage out, right? But I, if what you're looking at is here's here's where the algorithm truly is objective, because if what you're looking at is whether or not this person has a chance of being arrested for a crime, and what you want is accuracy, then taking into account the biases that exist because of lack the failure of human objectivity, right? If you put in like how how right. racist is your district? You're going to get an accurate, a more accurate number um, for blacks, right, being arrested disproportionately. So it's it's tricky. Like the numbers aren't it's just tricky, the numbers. But it doesn't. Like the the bottom line is that it doesn't successfully predict um, whether people will reoffend, and the ways in which it fails are racially biased. Like it fails on predicting black people will when they don't, and white people won't when they do. So like it's not as straightforward as. Does it? Do you win games or do you lose games? But there's, I mean, yeah, right. It's yeah, not yeah. like so, that. Racial information is unfortunately of predictive value. Right, right. It's actually, it's actually disproportionate. Now, so, so here is where then we just get to the quality of of the algorithm. And so, right. but that that is a separate argument. Right? So, Whether so not- I mean, you can always say get a better algorithm, which you certainly should say in this case. Um, nor I like yeah. how North Point 
the company just issued a denial that that's that those numbers are accurate uh, while providing no evidence. Yeah, nuh-uh. It was a, that, that was their, their <laughs> that nuh-uh. Was, There's are. no fucking way that this should not be open source sort of code yeah. to the community. Yeah. There is that's no the, fucking way that should be. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, there's another question. Well, there's two other interesting questions about this. So, so let me ask you this, like. Because I'm sure this has been proposed, and I'm sure there's some studies out there. Let's say that you there was an algorithm out there that would predict whether or not a married couple would get divorced or not based on a suite of 125 questions yeah. that that they would ask, that that it asks them and it issues a score and then that score can then influence whether you want to get married or not do you want to use that yes there yeah. can be bad algorithms that always predict divorces and when they people have a happily married life but there could be good algorithms but even if there was a good algorithm there is an argument, I would be on the side of this, for not using an algorithm when it comes to that choice. But there's also an argument to go the other way. What do you, where, do yeah. you, where would you lie on that? So, so there, is, there is a researcher named John Gottman who, who's at the University of Washington who, has just, who tries to do just this, right? Predict whether or not sort of the success of the relationship um, over time, given the data that he can collect. And he seems to be surprisingly accurate at predicting whether or not people will be have marital satisfaction whether or not they're going to get divorced i'm all for it give like yeah bring give me the data i'd rather know because because you know if 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 i have a better chance of being in a happy marriage um like for instance given those data i might go to counseling earlier right I actually might take take some steps to to uh, try to at least address the problem and and change the the nature of the data that I'm being given, or fuck man, some people shouldn't get married and they just don't they're too blind to see it, right? But like how so do you many people... use that data properly? So like it's just like if you were just using this data, which some pe- the 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 prison data, right? One of the founders wanted to use it not even for sentencing but for figuring out how to properly rehabilitate criminals, like what sort of support they need when they're getting out of prison. Are they in a high-risk case, in which case you're going to want to provide more job training, more vocational stuff? That's beautiful. Like, imagine using it for that. Same thing with you, with the marriage thing. Like, maybe go to counseling early because you get that score. The problem is, is that score will hover over you no matter what right it's it's like the question is is it impossible like the atomic bomb is it possible to use it only when i mean it's it's a fair that's a good point that's a that's a really good point i mean uh, it has to be a balance right it's like sort of knowing um when you get these like 23andme genetic testing do you want to know what your propensity is to get diabetes um well diabetes can you know you might be able to control that through your diet and exercise but now do you want to know if you're going to get Alzheimer's? Well, fuck, I don't know. Like, you know, I don't know what I can do about that. Maybe I don't want to know. And that might hover over me. Like every time, like, for instance, I know people who have um, parents who got early onset Alzheimer's. And now, like, whenever they lose their keys, they're fucking freaking out 
because they're like, shit, I'm around the age that I was when my mom started getting Alzheimer's. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> and so they like lose their keys and it's like real, like for, like for good reason they're freaking out. And so I might actually like every time I get an argument, I'd be like, the doc said 23%. Like <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. This is doomed. So there's got to be certain things, certain domains where even if the information is accurate, it's a bad idea to have it. <clears throat> Right. Well, so here's where I and and you asked me this early on in this conversation, and I actually really do believe that it should not be used for arrests, sentencing uh, or culpability scores, anything like that. Where I think it might come in handy is in in uh, the conditional release decisions. So my my notion here is that say like judges in the in the well-known Lavav study of the of the Israeli judges who right. who are close to meal time um being more um less uh, more likely to go with a default choice there an algorithm might prevent such a bias from creeping in and that I wouldn't I wouldn't want the prisoner to know but I would want the parole board to know and use that information in a way that could prevent um so so it, my my idea is essentially Anybody would you would only get people um, being either released like at their full sentence or earlier. And you would never go. It would never be used for the harshness of a sentence to begin with. Like, but I think that there's good reason to think like if that Israeli judge study is true, that fuck, why wouldn't you want there to be some piece of data? that? But of course, like if that Israeli study is true, then I'm sure those things have an impact on jury decisions. I'm sure those things have an impact on judges, original decisions. And so there's pressure at every level, not just the parole board level, to try to reduce that kind of bias. I think you're you're doing a bit of a bait and switch here because I think that it's clear the reason that I'm saying that we want it for conditional release decisions is that it's clear that likelihood of future crime really is a normatively defensible criteria to use when making those decisions. Right. Uh, I don't think that possibility of a future crime is normatively defensible for for making a culpability decision. But there are other things that might be more objective um, that are sort of required of us when we're making a judgment about culpability. So if in fact you could mask the race of the defendant um, uh, when jury's making a decision about culpability or not, right? if you could sh- if you could do that and show that then the disparity in very similar cases went away, then I would say do that. So it's what kind of objectivity is required, right? And that's not the job of the algorithm. It's the job of the justice system or people like you who are actual philosophers um, to determine what what kind of information is the best, highest quality information that we need for any given decision. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I would have much less of a issue if that's all the, the algorithms were being used for. And I would have even less of an issue if it was being used for what I, that original founder intended it, you know, as right. ways of providing support for prisoners upon release, you know, trying to determine how, what level of support that that they might need. I mean, there are ways of using this power for good, a power that right. doesn't yet exist, but may exist, may may soon exist, given the success of analytics in other domains. There's reason to think that 
it, you, we might come up with. I mean, but maybe not. It may be that like voters and and baseball players are easier to predict than human beings committing crimes. Right, like, and and it may actually be just a moral, morally just. Um, objectionable to make the sorts of errors that you're okay making in baseball, where you don't you don't hire a pitcher given an analytic, and then it turns out that he was a success, right? Like that's just like a well, but in the case of of determining guilt, the the moral downside of making a mistake is much lower in baseball. Right, or exactly. mispredicting an, an election or something like that. Right. So you might say, well, that's totally unfair that given this metric, you failed to hire me. Um, but, you know, that's a different kind of unfair than than sentencing me or keeping me in prison. When And I, and I don't know whether or not we, you know, we might have good reason not to want an algorithm to be used, even for conditional release, um, until it was 100% accurate. Not because... It's worse information. It's better information. I think judges probably are still using it, but because it would then become obvious whenever we made a mistake. Last question. There was an interesting, like, on the analytics question, Michael Wilbon for that new website, The Undefeated, that finally got launched, that's supposed to be like Black Grantland. Um, Yeah. The, he wrote a piece saying that analytics movement in sports, there was racial bias, that it's, it's being used as, uh, for exclusion. It's always these white men that turn to the analytics. It's a way of keeping out minority um, perspectives and that black people just don't talk about it. They don't approach sports that way. That's not, you, uh, that's not part of what sports that's, is. And he's almost making like a claim about, you know, this is, this is literally, this is like, like what, Western, white Western people, science. What, what kind of white people with emotional deficits naturally turn to and um so that was the that was the claim and uh, it's 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 interesting the idea that that analytics itself might have some sort of inherent bias but what do yeah. you think i mean I, I i normally like michael wilbon i don't and i don't know what whether he has any evidence for this at all other than you know so suppose it's true that that say say black coaches are less likely to want to use analytics. There is such a straightforward way in which if analytics are actually accurate at, at, at determining what strategies to use in order to win, then, then that would just be a problem of the coach not accepting these, the numbers crunched by these white nerds. Um, but I guess the right. idea is it again, like like these, the, it gives people an excuse not to hire a black coach. Well, they don't use analytics. I mean, you're I, right though that if it has a proven track record, if analytics does have a proven track record, like say it does in baseball, then people just need to get on board. Yeah, yeah. If 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 black people systematically aren't getting on board with analytics, which I doubt. I mean, I, I maybe that's true. Uh, then I, I think that the on, the only appeal is just like the sort of old white men who ran baseball were reluctant to get on analytics. Like, sorry, like the future is coming, right? And and I, again, I don't have any data for this, but like off the top of my head, I don't think that anybody like like uh, Kobe Bryant wouldn't be pouring over as much data as they possibly could in order to well, rip the, the heart the, out the of their piece, opponents. He talks to a lot of. Uh, black basketball players current basketball players who say that this is not part of their thinking at all right and i don't know about kobe kobe's kind of white anyway 
<laughs> he was raised in Italy, for God's <laughs> sakes. <laughs> the, um, that's why he nicknamed himself the Black Mamba, so nobody could forget. Um, <laughs> right. The, nobody bought the, that. <laughs> nobody, you can't just nickname yourself, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to say it, if that many black players are, are not on board with analytics, then I think they're just putting themselves at a disadvantage. It may be true of, say, black athletic culture that it's not on board with analytics. That may very well be true. But like I would say, well, that's too that's too bad because I'll tell you what, like the white guys in the suits are definitely hiring the black basketball players based on their analytics. So I, it's like, you know, get on board or, or don't. Well, um, so the question, though, I guess is, so in baseball is one thing. In basketball, the jury's still out as to whether analytics is a useful yeah. tool or, or not. But if, if, if it's being used without having a proven track record as a, as a form of exclusion, that would be... That would yeah, and I don't know what. So, what kind of exclusion is it? Is it is he literally saying just sort of as a as a cultural exclusion, or is as actually a way to not hire black coaches? I mean, at times it sounds a little like you know women like to do philosophy that's more about feeling, right. and yeah, at, at that's, times, that's that's what, what it sounds like a kind of essentialist claim about white men being really into math and and, and I, you know statistics, whereas black people are more about the feel of a game. And yeah, and it's. It seems like a dis, like a distasteful stereotype. Um, maybe it is true that there are sort of fewer black nerds out there about athletics, but um, but it seems as if it's not anything. But you could see be. that it be it, it, it like you could see that it it is used as a pretext to exclude right in the same way that it has been in philosophy uh, for women and it. also minorities right like well but they can't you know complete this modal logic proof so you know that's why we can't hire them or they don't approach philosophy in this dry analytic way so like that gives us a reason and and thus they don't get published and thus like that gives us a reason to exclude them i mean those those so-called objective measures like do have some sort of political influence but again in philosophy it doesn't boil down as as easily to do you win or not <laughs> do you win the game right 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 and yeah. and i don't know i mean if it's if it's um, it's maybe because I'm using baseball as my my sort of default sport. Um, well, no, but baseball, he even Wilbon says is a different. It's a different. Yeah, category. you know, it gets scarily down to the question of whether or not there is objective truth in mathematics, and if the claim <laughs> is that right, like it's it kind of gets down to that almost, where it's like if if you think that um, that that black players are are sort of justifiably ignoring analytics um because they're not really they're not really that important to the success of the sport then it's one thing but if you're saying that 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 it is in fact i i don't know it's intrinsic to black culture that we go on beauty rather than math and math stu is stupid then i'm just like that's a weird it's a weird well yeah i mean there are times and i love michael wilbon too and this and even this podcast owes a lot we, 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 we ripped we ripped from pti yeah um but like there are times where he's like infuriating that he was on a an analytics podcast you know um a 538 podcast and they're talking to him about this and he's making fun of the stat points per possession while clearly just not understanding 
the thinking or the reasoning behind points per possession. He's like, just do it in a game, points per game. Why do a possession? And they're try to explain it. Like, well, because, um, you know, some teams play at a higher pace, some teams play at a lower pace, so that, you know, stats can be inflated or, or not based on that. And he's like, well, just do it for a game. Don't do it for, like, 100 possessions. Why do it for 100 possessions? And, like, he's just being sort of willfully... Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So so he might fear that... that, that um, sort of people will be excluded to the extent that they'll be excluded from the conversation to the extent that they don't they don't grok statistics um and maybe he's feeling that but it's it's funny because my initial response was like well what evidence is there that that black players are being excluded and And to answer that question you would turn to analytics (laughs) right that's that's where analytics would be his friend and so he's like i talked to draymond green you know it's it's exactly (laughs) what you would think like i talked to draymond green and he said i never talk about yeah he's feeling left out yeah i mean there is there is uh, you know sometimes i actually have this concern about psychology um that i realize that as we understand more and more about the human mind and human behavior it's going to reach a level of complexity that um requires sort of a quantitative understanding that I don't have anymore, right? Right. So, like, instead of doing these studies with two-way interactions, we're going to have to be, you know, understanding uh, understanding things in terms of these complex models with hundreds of interactions. And you know what? I will be unable to hang in that conversation. Like, By then, our AI masters will... Have sort of. This is why it. I'm being so nice to algorithms, man. Yeah. This is all. This shit is all going to be analyzed one day, and they will decide whether or not you were good. Good to the. You algorithm. are sucking up to algorithms. Now I'm I get it. Now it makes sense. Future AI. Yeah. Normally, if something leads to like higher prison population, no, you've always been in favor. But now it's just like, no, I know where my bread is going to be butter. I'm just happy that the algorithm wasn't unfair to Hispanics. (laughs) That's right. That was my only concern. Um, (laughs) Turns out the one Jew in the sample was accurately predicted. I bet. I bet the. It might just ask you, do you have a bar mitzvah? Low risk. It's like you know one of my good friends, uh, James Kaufman, in graduate school, who studied. creativity and intelligence his parents are well-known uh creators of iq tests for children so the kabc and the kbits these are kaufman assessment battery for children um and i had uh dinner once with him and his parents and they were telling me how they they would use my friend james um to come up with the iq questions when he was a kid and i was like oh i see how this is (laughs) So essentially, your IQ test is how much do people agree with my son, James Kaufman? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or like Kohlberg, right? I mean, like... The, your Piaget, Piaget, who uses his own kids. Anytime you, you come up with this sort of... St- stand like the the goal again it's 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 all of a piece right like no this is just an objective way of measuring what's moral and what's not or what and but there's always these assumptions that are uh, that have you know yeah that, so i think i yeah i i think we actually are in in agreement about this that the that we agree that the quality of the data can vastly improve and that yes. algorithms will be able to, given certain constraint problems, be able to give us really good information. The only question is whether or not human beings are are even more likely to abuse that information once they get it. And that that like that's a concern that I'm on board with. That is, yeah. Like I think that if we start using this kind of information, we ne- we will need our law to catch up 
to give constraints on how the information can be used and how it can't. And that That's that right. should be that should be highly regulated. And the bullshit of like just hiding the algorithm and then having judges use it irresponsibly is is just a complete crock and no worse. It's no better than just being racist. Not in the sense that it is also racist, but in the sense that it is just as irresponsible, like to yeah. make judgments. Like, and it's yeah. and it's like irresponsible, but having, but like shedding responsibility. For yeah, the, it right. being irresponsible. Right. I mean, of course. And then, but the, what we really should do is just switch over to restorative justice, and then all these problems <laughs> get solved. We could just hug it out, bro. Hug it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I think of. Restorative diving. <laughs> well, that's kind of what we've done here at the end of this episode. So maybe <laughs> yeah. this is a good place to stop. All right. Next time we'll talk about uh, um, Huck, The Conscience of Huckleberry Finn by – what's his name? Uh, Jonathan Bennett. Jonathan Bennett. Yeah. Um, we'll, this is part of our classic paper series. So um, yes. if you want to read ahead like they do on Partially Examined Life, um, then then do that. And that's what we'll talk about next episode. Just a very bad wizard.